Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yeah, welcome back. Um, we are the Defenders of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. We, when I say welcome back, that's because we're here every week. We were here last Saturday. We're going to be here next Saturday. Because there's so much going on that needs to be spoken about in the defence of government schools. Now, last week, well, of course, we had a long extended interview with the Reason Party candidate um, in the North Kabai election, which, which, of course, is on today. So if you're living up in Northcote and you haven't voted, and you go, oh, that's right. Hopefully I've reminded you on how to get. So, yes. Um, today, of course, we're going to be discussing a large number of things, but in all sorts of ways, the fallout of the same-sex marriage survey has become very interesting. And as many of our regular listeners will know, we are very interested in the separation of religion from the state. And, of course, this same-sex marriage survey and its result has now, result, has now come down on the yes side and there's large number of people jumping up and down about religious liberties and this is and that's is. And of course, Jean, who is an expert in this matter, I think is going to enlighten us a little bit about the consequences of all this hoo hiring up in Canberra. Of course, later on, we'll have um, our state schools are great schools. Today, we'll be talking about Whittlesey Primary School. Lovely little school in the country, in the city. It's in both, and it gets the best of both when it comes to the wonders that they do out there with a whole bunch of really great young kids. So we'll be discussing in detail the great school, which is Whittlesey Primary School. But before we get to that, um, Jean, you've been promising us from last week to finish off what you were saying about this whole question of um, religious liberties and separation of church and states and, and, and what's going on. Can, can, you, can you help us out? I still won't be finishing today. You're going to get more next week, I'm afraid. Oh, I look forward to it always. <laughs> uh, once I start writing, I'm sorry. Now, I uh, remember last week we talked about uh, fund, uh, religious liberty, a fundamental human right or part of a balancing act for discrimination legislation. So well, I'm just, just to go back from, from last week, because I was listening, um, can you just give us a dot point about what you were talking about there? Well, um, I was talking about um, what Section 116 actually says, and nobody's been mentioning that in this whole debate. They've been talking a lot about exemptions uh, in either marriage legislation or any other legislation, and I'll be talking Something about, about, about the their next idea, the next idea of the church. The inalienable rights of bakers or something like that. <laughs> to bake cakes. Anyway. Uh, yes, well, I think I mentioned the Cobol case, yes, which did. was taken up, uh, the Cobol case I was very interested to see, by a, a Michael Bachelard, or Bachelard of the Fairfax Media. Mm. So I'm starting off with him, but I'm going back to Section 116 and what actually happened in 1898. Well, wow, that is a fair what way back. What actually happened in the Constitutional Convention debates, which were not in any way discussed and have never been discussed by the High Court. Well, you're going to prove that all history is contemporary, aren't you, today? <laughs> not necessarily, but I think that we should inform ourselves. Deeply. Okay, this is press release 725. Religious liberty, is it a fundamental human right or part of a balancing act in discrimination legislation? I have to declare my interest here. I think it is a fundamental human right because it was uh, worked out in the days of the Enlightenment after about four or five hundred years of religious wars and terrible bloodshed. And I think a lot of people just don't want that to ever happen again. Now, I mentioned my, my I call Bachelard or Bachelard. And on the 15th of November, 
last week in the Fairfax Press, he had no doubt about the answer to my question. Is it a fundamental human right, religious liberty or part of a balancing act? Religious freedom is, he claims, and should be limited by civil laws. But the further question is, what civil laws? His article, Same Sex Marriage Debate, Religious Freedom Is and Should Be Limited, is highly derogatory of some religious beliefs and or practices. It actually has a whiff of payback in it. He writes, The Jesus people consider themselves a religion. They follow an ascetic form of Christianity. They also allegedly violently abuse women and practice polygamy as a way of getting closer to God. The children of God sexually abused young children in the name of Jesus Christ. This was not ancillary to their religion. It was part of their observance. And later he says, Then there is a subsection of Muslim believers who mutilate girls' genitalia. Ouch! How would this affect you if you were a follower of Jesus or Muhammad? After the results of the same-sex marriage plebiscite were announced on the ABC, it was interesting to note how representatives of the Roman Catholic, Anglican and Muslim groups reacted. I watched it. I sat up quite late and watched it. The Roman Catholic and Anglican representatives were particularly concerned about the religious integrity of their taxpayer-funded education, health and social services. However, Given the numbers, approximately 61 to 39%, religious exemptions relating to marriage equality have been pushed down the line to be dealt with after Christmas, according to reports in News Corp and the Fairfax Papers on the 17th of November 2017. That was yesterday. Yet once again, after watching the ABC uh, discussions, It just struck me personally that our established religions are more concerned with power and taxpayer funding and lobbying for both in the corridors of power than they are with freedom of and from religion. But then issues of freedom of conscience usually loom large for persecuted minorities rather than those identified with established religion. Christ himself would say, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. That's Matthew 21:22. Now dogs believe uncompromisingly in the separation of religion from the state and the public funding of public schools only. If Australia had separation of religion from the state, then if marriage is nothing more or less than a civil registration of relationships, Its definition should never have been the business of religious organisations unless this was relevant in a sacramental marriage ritual for their adherents. Meanwhile, billions of dollars are being diverted into private religious schools which are concerned that they will not be permitted to discriminate against teachers, pupils and parents on whatever basis they choose to call religious belief or religious sensitivities. Dogg's position is that if religious institutions take the Queen's shilling, then those institutions should fall under the civil law of the land. If they do not take the Queen's shilling, or if they are a commercial enterprise, not a commercial enterprise, then it might be a different matter, providing they don't take the Queen's shilling, that is. The Muslim representative on the ABC differed from his Christian brethren. It was quite interesting. He mentioned the need for religious liberty and a Bill of Rights. Where did he get this Enlightenment idea from? This is the Muslim guy from Queensland because it's very rare to find such religious liberties in any Muslim countries. They have Muslim law, which is the Sharia law. There is a a complete um, meeting of religion in the state. Yet Australia, 
back in 1901 when it was an enlightened country, and I'm suggesting that we've gone a long way from this point, inserted such a provision in the Australian Constitution. If the High Court judges had the temerity to look at the intentions of our founding fathers when they placed Section 116 in the Australian Constitution, they could have such a provision again. Yet nobody, nobody in this situation is talking about Section 116, are they? In 1981, in the Dogs case, the High Court refused to look at the intentions of the Founding Fathers when they placed Section 116 in the Australian Constitution. But what would happen, I wonder, if Section 116 was tested again? A lot of water has gone under the legal bridges since 1981. Those interested in genuine freedom of and from religion should inform themselves of recent developments. So what has happened since 1981? Well, first of all, the Acts Interpretation Amendment Act of 1984 happened, thanks to Lionel Murphy. Section 7 amended the original 1901 Act to include a Section 15AB. Go and have a look at it. This permitted the use of extrinsic material in the interpretation of an act to determine the meaning of a provision when it is ambiguous or obscure or the ordinary meaning leads to a result that is manifestly absurd or unreasonable. And that, of course, is what happened in 1981. The High Court judges made Section 116 look manifestly absurd and unreasonable. Now, in 1988, after the 1984 um, legislation, the Mason High Court finally reversed the original interpretive rule and the books of the convention debates have since been read in open court. As a result, many legal commentators and historians confronted with recent issues of religion and the state have been revisiting the dog's case and have discovered what the plaintiffs could have told them in 1981, that what was clearly a version of the religious liberty clauses in the American Constitution had been rendered meaningless in the Australian context. For legal commentators, the questions arising from the dog's case include techniques of constitutional interpretation as well as the intentions of the American and Australian founding fathers. But first of all, let's delve back into our history. We will indeed. Thanks very much. Jean, we'll be continuing on after a little bit of music. I think this is fascinating stuff and well worth listening to, but we'll give our minds a break now with some um, music from the time that Jean was talking about from 1979 in a recording by Winsome Evans and the Renaissance Players.
have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. The Proud Product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Uh, that was the Renaissance Players. Um, that was Winsome Evans and Stephen Floyd on flute and recorder and, of course, the voices. A recording made at the um, of Sydney Opera House, I think it was, in 1979. Believe it or not, in honour of Gough Whitlam, recent, <laughs> recently passed away. He was there at the time listening to that. He th- apparently, he thought it was nice. Very Australian, <laughs> but with Renaissance instruments. Um, so yeah, Gough Whitlam, not necessarily a friend to the dogs, but that's a, that's a different story. We're right in the middle of a very interesting story here about separation of religion from the state and the consequences that flow from what's happening in, um, you know, certainly sparked by the same-sex marriage debate. Jean, tell us more. Yes, well before the music, I suggested that we should go back to the Constitutional Convention debates of 1898 because they've never been allowed in the High Court but now they could be. They can't reject them. Now, long before the Dogs High Court case in 1981, Australian historians, particularly those of the colonial period, had charted the 1836 abandonment of the established English church in colonial New South Wales and the abandonment of state aid to religion in the 1860s and the abandonment of state aid to religious schools throughout Australia in the last 30 years of the 19th century. Now, how do I know that? I was one of those historians. But I knew all of the others who were doing it too. And we all knew throughout Australia, Australian historians knew that by 1898, no public money was given to any church in Australia and no public money was given to any church school in Australia, right? So you have in 1898 a situation of complete separation of church and state. When Edmund Barton and others, therefore, told Henry Bournes Higgins in the 1898 constitutional debate that there was no need for a religious liberty clause based on the American First Amendment in the Australian Constitution, it wasn't only because the federal parliament, they said, would not have any express power to deal with religion under what is now Section 51 of the Constitution, It was also because they believed that they had solved the religious problem. They had already successfully separated religion from the state. This is what Barton said. Because we are a Christian community, we ought to have advanced so much since the days of state aid and the days of making a law for the establishment of a religion since the days of imposing religious observances or exacting a religious test as a qualification for any office of the state. As to render any such dangers practicably impossible, and we will be going a little too far if we attempt to load this constitution with a provision for dangers which are practically non-existent. Well, listeners, we all know that 1898 is certainly not 2017. But Inglis Clark and Higgins and other separationists of that time were not convinced that there was no probability of such enlightened communities retracing their steps into the current black hole of education funding that we're now in. They wanted guarantees for separation of religion from the state in 1898. And why? Because religious 
Even then, religious, mainly clerical leaders of the 1880s and 1890s had not always accepted their separation from either the public place or, in the case of the Roman Catholic hierarchy, the public treasury. The religious backdrop to the 1890s Federal Constitutional Convention was absolutely punctuated non-stop for the whole of the 1990s by petitions. And what were these petitions for? To have the recognition of Almighty God in the preamble to the Constitution. And Higgins claimed to have 38,000 signatures organised by only 2,000 plus Seventh-day Adventists at that time who had recently arrived in Australia from the USA. But they'd had to fight the Sunday, um, because they work on Sunday, the Sunday Sabbatarian ban in the United States. So they were opposing the inclusion of the recognition clause in the preamble. They didn't succeed, so Section 116 was their, um, their, their success. Now, this story has been very well documented by Richard Ely, my husband, and it's been taken up by Seventh-day Adventists and other legal commentators since 1981. And Richard's book is now regarded as a classic in these areas. But it was not allowed into the High Court in 1981. What has not yet seen a wider audience, however, is the work that he did in his doctoral thesis on the religious background of all of the convention delegates and the way they voted on the two religious clauses, the Preamble Recognition Clause and Section 116 itself. And that is very interesting, and you can read it uh, in our press release. But what came out, what what Richard looked at with all these different um, percentages was that the Roman Catholics were not as well represented as the Anglicans and there were actually only two um, people who were not members of the major denominations. One, of course, was Inglis Clark, who was a Unitarian, and the other one was Higgins, who was an atheist. But every social, political and economic standpoint did find a place in the separationist ranks, the people who voted for Section 116. Uh, So perhaps it just reflected the way they accepted the world, their zeitgeist at that time. Isn't it a pity we don't have the same zeitgeist now that our forefathers had? Of particular interest was the religious seriousness, the strong support for the recognition clause and the strong opposition to the insertion of Higgins's religious liberty clause into the Australian Constitution by a man called Quick and another man called Garron. Now, Garron was not a member of the convention. He was Reed's secretary and was an assistant to the drafting committee, but Quick was a loyal Methodist um, and Garron was a loyal Anglican. And they were the ones who wrote the annotated version to the Constitution, which was used by the High Court in the Dogs case. And they had the hide to say that Section 116 was inserted into the Constitution in response to H.B. Higgins' concern that the recognition of God in the preamble might justify intolerant or restrictive legislation. Um, And they also said that uh, it meant that you shouldn't uh, have a state church in the Establishment Clause. Uh, But, as we know, that was not the real reason it was put in. It was put in because Inglis Clark and Higgins uh, were concerned that the religious men didn't just want the preamble, they also wanted money for their enterprises. But who was... This English clerk, when Quick and Garin remarked how such a clause actually crept in to the Bill of 1891, because it had been there, it had been knocked off in 1895 and it came back in 1898, they just couldn't understand where it had come from. Well, English clerk could have told them because it was his clause. He put it into the original Constitution of 1891 and Inglis Clark was the major person who drafted our Constitution. Mm. 
it has an Americanophile uh, section or many sections in it taken from uh, America, but it also can be called a wash minster. A wash minster constitution, it has in it uh, sections from both the American and the British uh, historical precedent. So who was he? He was the Tasmanian Attorney General in the 1890s. And in 1898, he was the Supreme Court Judge in Tasmania. And he was the one who's responsible for Section 116. Now, it's only been in the last 20 years that interest in the Tasmanian responsible for the first draft of Australian Constitution has actually increased a thousandfold. He was forgotten for about a 100 years. He didn't have any powerful friends, um, and he was Taswegian after all. So people forgot about him until about all the 1860s and 70s when he was discovered by John Reynolds, the son, sorry, the father of Henry Reynolds, who discovered the Aboriginal question in Australia. And he was also discovered by Richard Ely, who was doing research on 116. And since then, there have been thousands and thousands of books and articles written on this extraordinary man. Uh, but the people in Tasmania always knew about him. He, he died in 1908, and when he died, he was very disappointed in his ambition of a position on the Australian High Court. But the descendants of his Hobart family and friends always knew about him. They knew about his house just around from our place in, in Battery Point. It's called Rosebank in Hamden Road. They also know down there about the shipyard of his anti-transportation father-in-law, a man called Ross, and his final resting place in what remains of the Sandy Bay Cemetery because this Sandy Bay Cemetery was taken over, of course, by the Hutchins School. But his, they moved him. His, his stone is still there. They also knew, if you were down in Tasmania, that he was an Americanophile and he was a great admirer of the Italian Democrat Giuseppe Mazzini in the days of um, the uh, Italian Risorgimento, I think they call it. Um, that was when uh, it, Italy became a nation. The historian John Reynolds, as I've said, resurrected his memory and so did Richard. And in 2001, with Federation Centenaries in Vogue, books on his life and work were launched and scholars came from all over Australia to Hobart to celebrate his contribution to the Australian polity. Now, he did publish a commentary on the Constitution his own, but unfortunately he didn't put in anything about section 116. But there's other evidence in his manuscript papers concerning his adherence to a strong separationist position. I'd like to refer to two papers which are actually in manuscript but have been republished. One was in the Clark's papers in which is an 1885 essay, which is entitled Denominational Education. And the other is in a 1901 notebook, which was sold at a Christie's auction in 1996. Unfortunately, it came back into um, the Hobart Library. And the notebook contained poems by Clark, together with an intensely worked-over handwritten fragment of his 1901 Studies in Australian Constitutional Law. And in this, Richard Ely found a short essay entitled The Preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia. That's where Almighty God is recognised. And, of course, Clark was not happy about it. Now, there's also the Tasmanian debate on the actual draft Commonwealth Bill of 1897 in which um, Clark tried to make Section 116 even stronger. And that actually was knocked out on March the 2nd, 1898, and everybody thought that Section 116 was gone until Higgins slipped it in and he managed to get the votes to put it in because largely of 
because of the Seventh Days Adventists um, petitions. Now we're going to have a bit of a break. I know that that's quite a bit for people to take in. Oh, but, but it's I worth it. Definitely worth it. I want to it. tell you more about this enlightened man who put Section One One Six and large, large, many, many other sections into our Constitution and why he did it and the sort of person he was. Because I think those of us who believe in a lot of these enlightened views and want an enlightened Australia can do well to go back and understand that we are not alone. We have very, very interesting forefathers. Indeed, which we'll find out about after we've had a little bath in the waters of Babylon. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We've been listening again, having a little uh, having a little Winsome Evans Day today. And if you're listening, Winsome, up there in Sydney, your music is going to air on 3CR. That was The Waters of Babylon. Again, that was Winsome Evans, Ingrid Walker, Stephen Lloyd, and the singers from the Renaissance Players. A recording made in 1979 um, at the Sydney Opera House. Um, that was to break it up because what Jean has been talking, is talking about is, is the fruits of a great deal of research she's been doing while she's been away, as you know. Uh, but now she's back and she's downloading. It's important stuff in the current debate. You might think, what have Seventh-day Adventists got to do with the gay marriage debate? Well, Jean's about to explain, and she has already, but she'll continue. Yes, well, um, the Seventh-day Adventists, of course, were a minority. There were only 2,000 of them back in... Uh, in 1898, and it's minorities with peculiar belief systems that need protection uh, in these mat- in these kind of matters. As as those who have been involved been involved in the um, in the marriage debate know, of course, only too well. 
Now, I want to talk about Clark on state aid in his paper on denominational education. The pay, his paper was an argument against the payment by results. And what else have we got at the moment, of course? System which was being used by religious interests to regain state aid to their schools in Tasmania. Now, in Tasmania, state aid to religious schools was, was withdrawn in 1854. And in his paper, Clark proved himself a very hard liberal, a man with a deep belief in the liberal political order evolving towards true freedom of the individual, civic and religious order. He claimed that this freedom was a very fragile plant which was vulnerable to subversion within and perils without. He wrote, and this is a very important quote, so I would really appreciate it if you listen carefully. Oh, thank you, Jean. We all will. I'm I'm ready to go. If the state should restore to the Roman Catholic portion of the population the whole of that portion of its revenue which it derives from them as citizens to be expended by them in establishing and maintaining a social organisation sufficiently separate from the state to permit it to be sufficiently permeated with Roman Catholic teaching, then the state must refuse it because the concession of it would be a recognition of the propriety of an imperium in imperio, a state within a state. And a divided sovereignty is simply political emasculation and asthenia. Malcolm Turnbull, take note. Separate grants by the state in aid of denominational schools upon the principle of payment by results must necessarily amount to state endowment of particular forms of religion. So that is Inglis Clark, and it is, I suggest, a very important quote. When did he say that, Jane? That was when he wrote Denominational Education in 1885. Right, we have come a long way, haven't we, in 130 years? Yep. Now, there is this other manuscript document that I'd like to also refer to. It's the preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia that Richard found in these papers that they bought uh, overseas. Clark, who's the hard liberal who believed in fundamental laws for the protection of the natural rights of the individual beyond the reach of the majority of the hour, wrote fighting words on the recognition of God in in his commentary on the preamble. He was very angry that they put it in. To require, he wrote, a minority of citizens to expatriate themselves in order to escape from membership of a nation or community which by a vote of a majority of its members undertakes to make a corporate confession of any religious doctrine or belief is to use political and consequently physical force in the name of religion as clearly and directly as it was at any time used for the burning or expulsion of heretics. He chose his most trenchant criticism in this paper not for Catholics, who were only being consistent in imposing a declaration of the existence of God upon the people of Australia, but for Protestants, and he said their fundamental doctrine was the essentially and absolutely individualistic character of relations of each human soul to its creator. Now, he knew what he was talking about because he started life as a Baptist. He ended it as a Unitarian, but he knew his Bible, I assure you. Now, not unsurprisingly, Clark, by this stage of his life, like Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Unitarian, had changed. His remarks pertinently illustrate Milton's allegation that new presbyter is but old priest writ large. So Andrew Inglis Clark and those who voted for section 116 into the Australian Constitution were underlining a situation which their colonial forebears had already forged 
a separation of religion from the state in which neither religion nor religious schools received any taxpayer funding. And as a Unitarian, but also Seventh-day Adventists and others in, in 19th century Australia, and Methodists and Presbyterians had all uh, rejected the money for their schools. Since then, of course, all they can think about is how much. And that includes the Seventh-day Adventists, how much they can get from the government for their enterprises. But I've just answered the historical question, what has happened, or what did happen, I'm sorry, in 1898. I asked that question and I've tried to answer it for you, going back to 1898 and above all to Andrew Ingalls Clark. But there's another question that needs to be asked about all of this and what we're going to do right now in Australia to retain religious freedom. What has happened in case law and legal commentaries since the Dogs case in 1981? And that is the subject for next week. Thank you very much, Jane. You've been listening to the Dogs program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So we've had a bit of background on where this whole same-sex marriage separation of religion and state comes from. Now we're going to do next week discuss where it's at and perhaps talk about where it might go because this is very much a live issue. Separation of religion and the state has been brought to the fore by this current survey. It's not a plebiscite, this current non-compulsory survey about what happens in other people's marriage beds, beds that we've all had to fill out for one reason or another. Well, I'm fascinated that the commentators, the religious commentators, aren't talking about discrimination law. They're talking about charity law. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, We'll be back with more of the DOGS program, the defenders of government schools and staunch separationists when it comes to religion and the state, after these messages. Sometimes when you need help most, it can be really hard to speak up. If you need things like food, a place to stay or counselling support, there's no shame when you ask Izzy. AskIzzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus, there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's A-S-K-I-Z-Z-Y dot org dot A-U. A 3CR supporter. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari. Brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the A&R. Now, if you are um, listening to Jean's very learned um, uh, what's an essay really, is a radio essay um, and, and you want to check up on things or actually deal with it in detail, you can do not be afraid that you've missed anything there's two ways you can catch up with the detailed research that Jean's done first of course is you can get it a podcast you go to the 3CR website 3cr.org.au I think it is and you can just go to the dog bit of that website and get a podcast or you can come to our website where it's all written down nice and clear in white and black and our website is www.adogs.info www.adogs.info Go to the press releases section and it'll be the last one that you see there. Uh, There's hundreds of course, but don't worry, it's the last one you're looking for. Fascinating research she's done. Now one one of the sort of implications, I suppose, of the whole High Court case and the writing down and out of the separation clause of our constitution in 1981 is one of the implications, and Jim might disagree, is that they they had a go at the word any, and they said, oh, we, we're not we're not we're not funding any particular religion. We're funding all the religions, and so therefore we're going to fund all the religions. That's all right. There's fairness and there's equity, and all the religions get all the money that they want from the taxpayer, and and that's all fine. 
I mean, that's, that's where we are at the moment, where taxpayers' money is going to support religious institutions, particularly in education, and because everyone gets it. Um, now, one of the things, of course, that Inga's class sort of prophesied, in fact, what he was saying, James, what he prophesied is, that's all very well, but what if they start fighting each other? What if the Catholics and the Protestants don't like each other? What if the Muslims and the Baptists you know, want more money or less money? Not in, on, on, on theological grounds, Jane, not, not on you know, what colour God is or how big or how little or, or how many arms. Nothing, nothing to do about God, but purely to do with the numbers, purely to do with the money. What if they start squabbling and fighting over how much money they get because the other people aren't getting as much as... And it's not fair. And, and like, you know, what if they end up behaving like children um, with lollies being distributed at someone's birthday? birthday party. And that's the problem that Ingus Clark, I think, was, was talking about as well, or hinting at, and that's exactly what we've got now. And this is highlighted in an article on November the 16th, just this week, by Henrietta Cook, uh, where the Catholic school system and the independent school system, uh, the independent school system um, covers a, a broad range of de- denominations, mainly what people would call Protestant, but other denominations as well are part of the independent school systems, or as we like to say here at the Dogs, the dependent school systems, because if they didn't have taxpayers' money, uh, they wouldn't exist, quite frankly, most of them. But the independent school system and the Catholic school system are having a bitter stout right now in 2017 over the contentious issue of how much money each one of them gets. Um, the independent school system has bitten back because the Catholic school system are being very rude to them and they're saying we're not going to be used as scapegoats because of a stagnating enrolment in the Catholic school system. Hallelujah, I'm very glad it's happening. So Unfortunately, it's, they've banded together for too long yes, well, and, uh, in a conspiracy against the public I mean, system. For those older people, do you think it's going to go back to the days of Proddy Dogs and Mickey Kids and stuff oh. like that? Oh, I hope not. But anyway, they're off and running here in 2017, the independent schools and the Catholic schools. The fight first began. Okay, who started it is usually the question in the playground, isn't it? The fight began when the Catholic sector released a report warning that wealthy independent schools will be overfunded by billions of dollars over the next decade under the Turnbull government's Dancy 2.0 model. Surprise, so, surprise. So, the, so, well, because the independent schools were all for the Gonski 2.0. Do you remember that bit? They were all very oh, quiet. Very yeah. nicely. Very I think nice. King's School got a few million cut off at each year, but then all the others were very quiet, and we wondered why. Well, the Catholic sector's worked it out. They say, because they're going to get too much money. It's not fair. Anyway, in response, the independent schools, uh, head Michelle Green, has, has, has bit back. Yep, in the playground. She says the Catholic sector's campaign is not fair. She says it claims the Catholic schools and low-fee independent schools, both Catholic schools and low-fee independent schools, will both be underfunded, so they'll both be picked on. It's not even fair. And the independent schools, Victoria, she she, she said this, um, was was waging an ill-informed and divisive campaign. She said, this increasingly desperate assault risks being seen as an attempt to distract attention from deep-seated challenges confronting the Catholic school sector. Yeah, you've got more problems. It's nothing to do with me, she said. She goes on to say, whatever the underlying issues, independent schools refuse to be used as scapegoats by the Catholic school sector. Anyway, Stephen Elder, the chief executive of the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria, well, I can't expect him to take that lying down. <laughs> yes, yeah. now she's, yes, well, anyway, um, Ms. Green said the enrolment growth in Catholic schools has stagnated and was being overtaken by both state and independent schools. So what she's saying is, yeah, well, we just got more knowledge because we're better, so there. Anyway, almost half, that is 46%, of the Catholic students now attend state or independent schools, according to Ms. Green. Now, what an interesting figure. Isn't it? Interesting. Catholic students, almost half of Catholic students now attend either independent schools or state schools. And they would be the families that can't, on the whole, can't afford the, um, the fees. Yeah, so they're either buying they're up, so, they're either yeah. buying up or, or, or cashing out. Yeah, yeah. Buying up or cashing out. That's what 46% of the Catholic students. It's interesting. I'm going to have an aside now from the article, so I'm going to step away from, from, from this article written by Henrietta Cook because it, it was very interesting to note in the same-sex marriage plebiscite, mm. um, a very large proportion of um, Catholics uh, in Australia voted uh, 
to not really care about what happens in the marriage bedrooms of, of, of gay married couples. They said, yes, go for your life. Now, this was despite the fact that the Catholic Church specifically said you should vote no. So there's this whole question of you know the, the Catholic vote being this sort of monolithic thing that the politicians need to be afraid of, that the Catholic Church can wield at elections. I think it's becoming less and less a truth um, in Australia today. Maybe it was a truth in the past, but I don't think it's a truth anymore. But to return to this to this schoolyard fight between Michelle Green and Stephen Elder between the independent schools <coughs> and the Catholic schools. Right. Now, this is really interesting because Stephen Elder <laughs> is using intemperate and sectarian language. She's accused of doing that by, by Michelle Green. And she says that Mr. Stephen Elder's intemperate and sectarian language should not be allowed to distract us from the fact that Catholic schools are steadily losing enrolments to the independent and government sectors. Mm. But Mr. Elder hit back, yes, haha, saying Catholic schools educated one and a half times as many students as Victorian independent schools anyway. So we've got more. So if it's a fight, I'm sure um, we'll win because we've got more students. And he said, and he said, he goes on to say, talk about knee-jerk reaction from Michelle Green. <laughs> We've clearly hit a raw nerve, he said. Mm. He said, and, and, oh, and this gets really nasty. He says, instead of responding to facts, Ms. Green has grown up, thrown up a red herring about enrolments. Anyway, he said the commission was standing up for families enrolled in Catholic schools as well as low-fee independent schools. So he's being nice and fair and he's the nice person and that's good. And he doesn't really want to fight except she's not very nice and she's being mean. I find okay. this fascinating. Isn't this wonderful? They're both scrabbling for the high ground as, as, as the gravel sort of falls from beneath their feet. They want to get up on top and be the nice people while they're being mean to other people. They, I mean, I mean, I hate to say it, but they both sound a bit like Cora Bernardi. You know, he's always going about what a nice man he is and then just comes out with the most hateful statement. <laughs> it's just amazing. Anyway, oh, this is fascinating. Anyway, the Catholic Education Commission report took aim at the socioeconomic status scores that determine school funding, a methodology that's been reviewed by the federal government. You know, the, 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 bit that, the bit that says that you know, um, poor kids should get more money from the government and, and richer kids shouldn't get quite so much. It's, it's a score and it's all been changing. Well, you can see why Birmingham's had to set up a separate commission or group uh, to, to deal with these people. Yeah, and that commission separately doesn't actually have a state school representative on it. It's, 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 so, so rather than focusing on the majority of kids, they now have to break up this fight between these two previous schoolyard bullies. It's like, you know, there's yeah. been... It's just ridiculous. Look, I can't go on because I did promise earlier, and this is very important, and I've saved the best till last. We've gone from, from the general, and I want to speak now about the particular. I want to speak about a beautiful little place. A beautiful school, a picturesque school called the Whittlesea Primary School. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> Yeah, state schools are great schools, and in Whittlesey Primary School, they're doing brilliant things on a budget. Because, you know, we're always giving financial advice here on the Dogs Program. For 6000 bucks of taxpayers' money a year per kid, plus another 3000 so you've got a total of about nine all up, $9,000 a year per kid. When it takes 12. When it takes, when it takes 12, okay, so this is saving taxpayers' money here. Um, at this primary school, they are coming out with top results. They are... As, as a school, doing better than similar schools, because when I say similar schools, the socioeconomic status of this particular school profile is 981 out of 1,000. So 1,000 is the median for Australia. So if you are the absolute average Australian, you've got a CS of 1,000. Kids here, a little bit less than that. Not, not, not a whole heap. It's about 978, I said, about 978. So it's not 800. They're not, they're not you know... Not really hard up, but they're pretty hard up out there in Whittlesey. And for those people out there in Whittlesey, you're not hard up because you live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Big mortgages. Yes, indeed. Um, Their results, um, absolutely brilliant in compared to similar schools, and they are as good as 
all the schools in Australia. So they're up there. They're doing a good job. They've got music. They've got, they, they've got the lot. They've got music. They've got reading. They've got writing. They've got arithmetic. And when you see the kids play, they have such a ball because they're just there on the, you know, just, just, just next to the Plenty Road having a great time. But they have their own challenges and priorities out there at Whittlesey. And they actually do the whole thing because there's a lot of kids there and they're getting more and more because once you've got a good school and a good town, you get a lot of kids turning up. Um, they meet individual learning needs of the kids to enhance learning opportunities and achievement for each child. So the teachers and the parents and the kids are all working together just so the kids can get the best that they can. And when I say it's a strange place, we'll see, because it's country and city all at the same time. And you know how sometimes country towns can be a bit vicious? Whittlesey's not really like that. You know how sometimes cities can be a little bit anonymous? Well, it's not like that either. And so with the people there, with the kids there at the Whittlesey Primary School out there in Whittlesey on Plenty Road, I can tell you, I don't know what's going on, but I can tell you over the last five years, the English department at that school have been doing wonderful things, well above the average for similar schools and well above the average for all schools in Australia. So you don't have to spend a lot of money to send your kid to, you know, Tintern Grammar or some swanky private school to get good results. Just buy a nice place out. We just go out there and put your kid in the local school. It's all you need to do. Because it, the catchment area is just the town and surrounds. You know, yeah, there's a waiting list, but you know what? The school will make sure you get on it. I mean, this is a tiny school with very few people in it to start with. But right now, there's about almost 500 kids going there. And only about 25%, about quarter of the kids come from the richest half of the country. Okay? That's to say 75% of the kids are from the poorest half of the country and about 40% of those are in the, in the bottom quartile. So they're doing good things with good people because the community's working out there. So congratulations. Congratulations to Whittlesey Primary School. You are a state school, a great school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State schools School of the week. Absolutely, state schools are great schools. You've been listening to the Dogs Program where we've been having some really serious academic research on the history of the problem from Jean. We've been had tales of schoolyard fights from the independent and Catholic schools and, of course, we have our state schools great schools. Here on the Dogs Program, if you want to catch up with us, you can because we have to run fast these days. There's so many issues to catch up with. You can do it on our website, www.adogs.info That's www.adogs.info But we're going to have to come back next week because state schools need defending once again. We haven't won the fight yet, but give us give us a bit. We've, we've only been around for 30 years on the radio. We'll sort it out pretty soon, I reckon, uh, where government schoolsmen will no longer need defending because of the 3CR and the dogs. But until next week, when we'll have to be back, it's bye for now. Where 
workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hero. It's there you find your hero. I dreamed I saw your hero last night. Alive as you and me, says I. But Joe, you're ten years dead. I never.